Transform the way you hunt with the all-new Bay Cellular Trail Camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning and welcome back to another episode of the Michigan Wild Podcast and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. All right, today I'm joined by Drew Youngdike. Um, Drew uh, is a guy that I've known for a few years now, had a chance to have him on my other podcast, uh, Michigan native. Um, he, he works for the National Wildlife Federation, so the outdoors um, is his job. It is what he does, um, but for Drew, it is much much deeper and more than that. Uh, Drew and I actually uh, grew up in the same part of Michigan, uh, competed against each other unknowingly in high school sports, which we talk about a little bit. Um, But we we take a deep dive into a lot of different things, Um, whether it's, uh, you know, deer camp traditions um, for for Drew, uh, the nostalgia that comes with it, the the legacy that comes with uh, things like deer camp, high school sports uh, in the state of Michigan, especially in the area where we grew up. Um, and we really get to talk a lot about uh, non-lead tackle and ammo, um, which is a big thing that Drew is very passionate about. Um, <clears throat> we talk about some of the different legislation that's out there um, kind of currently um, and how, you know, expressing uh, your opinions on on these things can really um, help us um, as outdoorsmen and outdoors women be proactive um, in you know preserving you know different species different habitat for said species uh, and really uh, you know for once as I just said be proactive in terms of conservation instead of reactive which has always been um, a bit of a downfall for for us as, as outdoorsmen Um, you know, we get to talk about, uh, Drew's, you know, really big passion when it comes to the outdoors. And that is pike fishing on a fly rod, uh, which is something that, you know, just knowing Drew, I know how, how much he loves doing that, but, you know, hearing kind of the origin story of why it became such an important thing to him, you know, why he enjoys, you know, tying his own flies as much as he does, um, and tying that no pun intended all back into, you know, the, using the non lead tackle and ammo and things that Drew is trying to do to, um, you know, help prevent, uh, lead poisoning, um, whether it's in the water, whether it's in the field, whatever the case is. So, uh, just, a, an all around great, great episode, great chat with Drew. Um, he's certainly someone that I always enjoy catching up with. So episode 14 with Drew Youngdike. Enjoy everybody. All right. Drew Youngdike. Welcome to the show, man. How are you? Thank you, Marcus. Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, no, this is uh this is good because uh one your name was I mean I've uh, you know we recorded on the average conservationist podcast gosh probably a year ago I would say at this point it may even have been longer I'm not even sure. But I had recorded with 
gosh, I'm not even sure who it was for the Michigan Wild podcast here. And someone had suggested like, oh, you should reach out to Drew Youngdike. And I was like, well, <laughs> okay. Like, yeah, like, you know, like I, I know Drew, like we've, we've, you know, recorded together. We've exchanged, you know, a bunch of messages over the years. So yeah, it was a no brainer. I think it was just more or less trying to like find the timing to do it. Right. That's right. And if I recall right too, we may have even played baseball against each other. There's a strong possibility. Actually, you know, I don't even think it's possible. I'm sure we did. The timing lines up. I'm sure we did. And yeah, I saw like throughout the course of the fall, you were up there cheering on your Trojans, which I saw they moved to eight man football. Is that right? Did actually they moved? Yeah. So so for folks that don't know, I'm from Central Lake, um, uh, Michigan. Um, Marcus is from. Uh, he went to Johannesburg, Lewiston, and we are in the same conference. That's good but, pronunciation there too. Yeah, <laughs> we uh, we moved to eight man football uh, in 2017. In fact, the first year that they moved to eight man football, they won the eight man uh, state championship. No kidding. Yeah, so it was, it, was, it was a good move. Um, you know, just I think a lot of those small schools are actually most of the Ski Valley Conference has now moved to eight man. Um, you know, you're just getting less consistent players. I know when I played, yeah, geez, we finished a season with like 12 healthy people. Like, barely. <laughs> you just make sure that you could actually feel the team on a consistent basis when you do that. But yeah, I went up there. One of my old teammates is the athletic director. So I always tell him when I'm on my way up, you know, if he has anything for me to do. Um, so last year, uh, he had me be the PA announcer. There you go. For one of the games, uh, this year he had that covered, but he needed help on the chain gang. So I, I, I ran the first down chain, you know, I'm going to be up there. I'm like, give me something to do, you know? So I ran the, the chain gang for our homecoming game. But what a great way to watch a game though. Like right from the sidelines. Like, I mean, sometimes I like the bird's eye view just cause you can kind of see plays develop and you can see things like that. But like there's it's tough to substitute that like being right there in the action i mean having to drop the sticks to get out of the way because the play's coming at you like whatever the case is i mean yeah that's that's a good way to watch a high school football game for sure it is you know unless you were an option quarterback and then you know you're you're like conditioned not to get out of the way just to take that <laughs> <laughs> that's very very true it's funny that you said uh when you were playing like you finished with 12 guys like i think my senior year, I think we had either 20 or 21 guys. We didn't have enough to like full on scrimmage, like offense, defense, like during the week of practice. So a lot of times we would like, I mean, granted up there, like we're not throwing the ball a whole, a whole lot. Right. So it's like, well, we don't really need a safety for this look. Like uh, we don't need a corner for that because chances are the team's playing like a cover three and they're just going to stand out there because we have two tight ends and three running backs and, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust type stuff. But yeah, it's uh I think it, it, the eight man is, it's a good route, you know, without, uh, with keeping kids playing because, you know, every high school, I mean, there's, especially up that way, man, there's such a, a pride in, in tradition in football, whether you're from a, you know, a powerhouse school or not, like that's just, you know, chances are their dad played, their grandpa played, their uncle, whatever. And it's just like, I mean, it's like hunting, right? It's almost like a, a rite of passage for a lot of kids in Northern Michigan. Absolutely. In fact, we did like half line scrimmages when we did that, you know? Yeah. We'd run to the left side and have the right side play defense. Um, <laughs> yeah, funny you should say that because it really leads into, uh, I think, what, what we were actually on here to talk about. But, um, you know, I went up to, uh, I just got back from deer camp and uh, we went up to our family's cottage in the western upper peninsula. And it's 
we normally do deer camp out of a wall tent, the Pigeon River country, but um, half my deer camp, being my dad and my brother, moved down to Tennessee. Uh, ah. So we figured if we're going to go try someplace else, we'd try it this year. But up at that deer camp, we went, I went there because uh, it's our family cottage, but it's where my great-grandpa used to and where this ties in is uh, on the way stopped at my aunt. She showed me some old pictures from Central Lake High School of my other great grandpa in a uh, holding a basketball with his team for the 1914 Central Lake basketball team. 1914. Wow. Well, as my grandpa, by the way, wearing the same number in, in like 1938. Um, and, and then pictures of them at their deer camp in the upper peninsula. So I think, you know, for those of us that, that grow up there, it's not really one or the other for a lot of us. Um, and there's a lot of ties between the two. We grow up with a family legacy of maybe playing sports for our hometown football team, as well as a family legacy of, you know, as soon as football season's over, maybe getting up to deer camp, um, you know, right before basketball season starts in between those two. So it's um, both the outdoors and sports, um, I think. Um, not for everybody, but I think for a lot of people, they're connected. And I think as we become adults, um, the challenge that things like deer hunting or fly fishing for pike, um, the challenge that those pose for us become the substitute for those athletic, that athletic competition, maybe that we missed, you know, from the preparation and just kind of the strategy of it. And, you know, just the chance of, putting up your skill with a little bit of luck and, and seeing if you can I think those are two qualities that, that mesh well together and come from the same place. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a really good correlation between the two because yeah, that preparation, that, that hard work that, I mean, and you know, with, with, you know, athletics, like, you know, for the most part, you're going to get multiple chances, right? Like you, you know, if, like if you're playing football, right, you got nine games or you're playing basketball, you got 20 games or, you know, baseball, you know, maybe it's 20 or 30, however many it is. But with hunting, like a lot of times it's that one chance, right? It's that, it's that, that, that one opportunity, whether it's a buck or whether it's, you know, just to, to shoot a, a deer period. Um, and that, that preparation is a, is a big thing. And you're right. It's, you, you made a good point. Like it's not, uh, one or the other in, in a lot of cases, right? It was whatever you had time for and you made time for things like that. Like that, that deer camp is, is, uh, is a really good point. I mean, it's uh, this, I mean, that story, man, that's crazy. A hundred and what, six years ago, eight years ago, yeah. excuse me, 108 years ago, you found a picture of your great, was it great, great grandfather or just great grandfather? My great grandpa in my hometown. Um, I mean, that's, I, that's a legacy, man. I mean, holy cow. I, I we all got to come from somewhere, right? Yep. In fact, he, uh, yeah, he, had, he, his dad, so my great, great grandpa, you know, that whole family, they had a meat market uh, and their, their tagline was home dressed meats. So, so that's, that's what I call my flies, by the way. <laughs> home dressed flies, home dressed meats. Cause okay. I, I all streamers for pike, you know, just big, you know, bucktail. <laughs> it looks like you're throwing a football in the water there. So how did deer camp go, Drew? Tell me about it. Oh, it was a fun camp. Not much in the way of actually deer hunting. Um, and, and we kind of knew that going in. Uh, you know, going up there, it was for 
because we have the cabin there and, and we thought it would be a cha- definitely a challenging place to hunt. But it's in Gogebic County and the unit that it's in has the lowest deer density of any place in the state. It's only one to three bucks per square mile. Uh, and so we knew that that was the case. We couldn't take does, you know, so we're limited right at the outset to, to a buck. Um, and, you know, you wouldn't want to necessarily take does there. The deer population is so small. And, and then we decided that we're going to track them. Okay. No tracking. Big, wood, big woods buck style, right? Um, and, and part of that was strategy, though, too. You know, we're not up there. Up there you can bait, but um, it's not really the style that, that we use. Um, but also we're not up there to know where to set up a stand. Um, you know, it's, it's not like I've scouted that. When I go up there, I'm on the lake fly fishing for pike the whole time. I haven't been driving around for us. So, you know, when you're when you're going into a new area with um, little scouting beforehand, um, except for talking to a couple of the other deer camps around, to make sure we're not uh, ruining where their stands are. I, I kind of called them ahead of time. It was just like, hey, where can we go that we just won't be in your way? Yeah. And some areas, which probably have the, the areas with fewer deer even within that zone. But putting all those together, you know, to just, I'd like to still hunt, but to just randomly pick a patch of woods and still hunt through it um, doesn't make a lot of sense when you don't even know if there's a deer within five square miles. Um, to just hang a stand on a tree doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you find a buck track in the snow and it's reasonably fresh, it's made that day, you might not know where it is precisely, but you know it's somewhere at the end of that track. Right. And, and so that, that was our strategy and we knew it was a long shot. What we were actually pleasantly surprised with, um, we kind of, there are three of us and the three of us went together one day and the other guy left, two of us went together, the rest of them. We were actually pleasantly surprised that we found a decent buck track each day, two tracks. Okay. Um, and I was happy with that. We didn't catch up with any of them. Uh, one of them ran into private land. One of them just led to a bait pile so got out of there. <laughs> and and the other one doubled back on itself a few times and um we ended up getting so far behind it with not much left in the day we kept up to it and it was too far ahead of us so uh, but we we got out in the woods we were walking through the woods with with our firearms um the sun was coming through the snow was out we were seeing tracks we didn't expect to we had a great time we had a sauna there we took saunas and jumped in the lake that's see like that's <laughs> That's a deer camp right yeah. there. I mean, because like, did, you know, told stories that don't leave deer camp, you know, just, just what it's all about. Right. Um, yeah. You know, just didn't see a deer. And frankly, all around us, we only heard in three days, we only even heard one. Oh, wow. I mean, that's a, uh, that's a, a really big drastic difference compared to, I mean, I didn't even get out opening day this year. Um, but where I typically hunt, um, my brother-in-law was hunting and he texted me that morning. He's like, well, there's the first shot a good 15 minutes before opening, uh, before like, um, you know, half hour before first light there, um, which I hate saying it, but it's like, it's not an uncommon thing. Right. I mean, I think I talked to one of the guys I work with and he was like, yeah, we heard a shot like 10 minutes before, you know, legal shooting light. And it's, yeah, it's super unfortunate, but I mean, it yeah. kind of is what it is. Um, There's no deer. There are they. They do exist in some little pockets there. Obviously, we saw the track, so we knew they were there, and we didn't um, 
catch up with them. Actually, the camp up the hill from us, uh, we kind of share a driveway with another cottage that um, some some very distant relatives of mine by marriage <laughs> um, camp there for about 40 years. And so, you know, we, we, we chatted with them quite a bit and they, they were really welcoming and, and sharing intel. But, you know, they they use cams and they know kind of which bucks are in the area. They tend, even with those low populations, they tend to let the little ones go. Um, so they saw, they saw a few that they let go, Okay. you know, just trying to, trying to, trying to, you know, let them go, let them grow voluntarily, um, for their own camp in the area where, you know, they, they hunt really nobody else does. So, uh, they saw a few, um, and, and there's a few there and, and with few shots, um, the ones that are there, you know, they might make it through and there might be a few more there next year. So. Well, I was going to ask is, you know, as you're, you're cutting these tracks and, you know, you're trying to hopefully catch up to them. Like, is there any part of you that, I mean, one, just, you know, it's, it's exciting, you know, just that you were able to find, you know, a buck track and able to, you know, still hunt your way through, through the big woods and, and, and everything like that. But was there a part of you that in the back of your mind was like, this could be a big deer. Like this could be a really big deer. One of them, I just knew I was onto it. Um, you know, I do the thing by measuring my, uh, my cartridge length, uh, by the width of the, of the track. Now I don't have a 30 out six, I have a seven millimeter away. So it's a little bit shorter. So yep. when you see the picture, it's not like you're measuring it by a 30 out six, but, um, it's the way they walk, right. Um, you know, a doe tends to be a little more pointed track, a little more in line with the steps, um, this and, and often together. You know, I, I got on one where it was actually off this like logging cut where there was this old logging two track that was just tumbled over that we couldn't have driven through. So we took a walk through it. Hadn't seen literally a sign of a single deer in like an hour, you know. Um, then we cross this fairly fresh and it's just a single track, rounded toes, staggered um, staggered footprints you know they're not in a line they're staggered off to the left and right just lumbering um you know and 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 wider not by much but wider than my cartridge lane so i'm like yeah this is one we're going to spend the time to try to catch up with because especially when you can't shoot a doe you don't want to make a mistake end up on a big doe that you thought was maybe a small buck and you just spent you know three or four hours tracking it only to find out it's a doe yeah want to make sure you know it's not that you're look like i think in that style if i saw probably a four corn or a six point i'm probably gonna shoot it right oh yeah but but i'm kind of selecting for bigger bigger bucks almost just to make sure i'm sure it's a buck and i'm not wasting you know half a day track. Uh, but we were on one and it was you know there were a few times it started to meander where i thought maybe we're getting close you know um they tend to go in a line and once they start meandering around um that's when they may be getting ready to bed down right um but it never really stopped we we never saw from the tracks where we bumped it yeah got that close to it but um it led into where uh beavers had dropped a whole lot of trees and it dammed up an area that was kind of deeper than we want in water that we wanted to walk through but then also getting very close to the edge of private property um where you know once it goes in there uh we're on cfr land but when it crosses into non-cfr private land you're, you're game up right so yeah so we, it was it was about the right time to head back and everything about that, so, yeah and a sauna 
<laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's I, I've not I've not tried still hunting like that. My dad used to be a big proponent of it. He really he really enjoyed that, especially in the UP. Like that's where he really um, enjoyed doing that. I know my dad, my uncle would. It was western. It was the western UP. I don't even know what what county or what the closest town they were even in was. But yeah, he he took a nice buck. Um, him and my uncle both did one winter and you know they had a, yeah they did a wall tent yeah i mean they were ass deep in snow uh up there and i think i don't even know if it was opening weekend or or when it was it seems like it probably would have been there been around that time but yeah he used to just rant and rave but i see a lot of similarities with things i know you like to do things i know my dad liked to do and i can see like i can kind of connect the dots a little bit right like he was a big fly fisherman, right? Like he, he, he liked to still hunt. Like, I think he just liked the challenge of things, right? Like he, he, he could have certainly done things an easier way, but he liked to, he just liked the struggle. There was like, there was beauty or there was like pain or beauty in the pain and the struggle for whatever it was that he liked to do in the outdoors. I mean, I'll give you an example. He, uh, and he was, he had a very obsessive behavior or like personality, excuse me where whatever he got into, I mean, he off the deep end, right? I mean, when I was younger, he got, uh, he got real big into golf, right? So not just like, oh, I'm going to go play some rounds with my buddies. Like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to find a a local pro at a golf course. I'm going to take lessons and then I'm going to buy a pair of clubs. I'm going to get those custom fitted. I'm going to regrip everything myself in the garage and all this. And like he did it for a while. And, you know, I think he got to the point where he's like, okay, this is probably as good as I'm going to get. And he was like, on to the next thing. And that next thing was fly fishing. And he was the same way, like tied his flies. He built his own drift boat one, one winter, like in the garage. And he got to the point where he was like, yeah, this is awesome. I love it. But what else is there? And then he got really big into walleye fishing. And it didn't matter if it was inland lakes, if it was the big water. Because by the time he got into walleye fishing, he had moved to the UP. He was just outside of Marquette, him and my mom. And yeah, he would spend basically every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday on either Big Bay or Little Bay. And I mean, I have uh, like a map of, is it Little Bay to knock? I'm not even sure. But there's like little wake points all over this map that he would just, you know, like he had a GPS, but he's like, no, I like doing this a little bit better, right? He would just translate one to the other. And after he passed away, like it was one of the things that I, that, uh, that I made sure to take and my wife had it framed for me. So I have this, you know, picture of little bait and knock with like, you know, a dozen or so wake points on it, like framed. I haven't even hung it up in my office yet, but I need to, but like, I, I see a lot of similarities in the way you like to do things and the way he liked to do things. I was just going to say, I, I, you kind of described it. Like I'm already, I've, I've kind of hit that point surfing. We're not even getting into that because do that hit that point where I'm like, I'm only going to get marginally better for the time that I have to put into it. That would pull me away from things like fly fishing for bike, you know, that kind of thing. I realized like putting, I'm like putting all my weekends into this detriment of the things that I really like to do for very marginal improvement in something I probably would have needed my means to be decent at. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the surfing is a cool one, man. Like I think, you and I probably talked about this on the, on the, uh, the other podcast that we did, but like 
uh, my wife and I did surfing on our honeymoon and this is shoot so almost 10 years ago but you know I've snowboarded it you know enough to know what to do but like surfing man like I remember after I did that and we came back I was like where can I surf in Michigan like it's just such a cool thing to do and to be able to do it on the Great Lakes and I would hear stories of you know guys in wetsuits up in Marquette you know um you know, probably like, probably like around this time of year, right? When those big swell, those big storms roll in and, you know, the water hasn't started to freeze, you know, close to shore and, you know, guys are out there riding six footers and things like that. Like that sounds awesome to me. Yeah. But you kind of have to, I think like live like right by the coast. So yeah, because like what I find from Ann Arbor is like, I have to plan my weekends out like months in advance. And so if I plan a surfing weekend out months in advance, I just have to hope that the weather holds up. Yeah. You know, and then I brought my board and then I didn't bring my canoe, but then the waves are flat, but I didn't bring my canoe, so I can't go fishing. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, there's always that trade off. You know, we pass through US two Northern, you know, Lake Michigan on the, on the Southern end of the UP, we could jump up to Marquette, hit that stretch between Munising and Marquette. I've liked to surf there before, but I rode with my, my cousin, you know, who's part of my deer camp. He's like, dude, I'm not going to stop in the middle of that drive for four hours to watch you surf. I'm like that. <laughs> say yeah but it's fun it's fun so yeah i'll probably even sell my board because i'm just like you know okay my bow broke last year so i need a bow Uh, you know that kind of thing (laughs) could use it could use a little you know boat with a motor for getting out on lakes you know yeah we'll see Uh, it might be one of those things that i got obsessive about ran its course and go back to just all the different forms of hunting Yeah, but that's all right. It's good to try new things. But one of the things I really like about, and, and you've touched on it a few times here, is is the fly fly fishing for pike. And first off, I think the art of just pike fishing in general uh, is lost on a lot of people because it's 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 tough, right? I mean, it's it's not it's not easy. Uh, you know, a lot of people, if they've not you know had eating pike the right way will kind of poo-poo at it right like ah pike's just no good it's like no pike is very good if it's if it's if you can get the bones out and you clean it right like pike is very very good how did you get down that track of fly fishing for pike yeah um so so also goes back up to that family legacy thing um up at the summer cottage uh you know pictures from the like the time my mom was a kid are just, you know, of my great grandpa and my grandpa and all of them growing up with stringers of pike. We'd go out on the, on the lake and my great uncle would take me out on like the little, you know, 14 foot aluminum boat and we'd catch pike. Um, in college, uh, my grandpa had moved back from uh, Wyoming and we go out on like Lake Skagabog and the chain of lakes around central lake and just troll for pike. That's what he did. Um, and then, you know, after, after he passed away, um, I, I got into fly fishing because frankly, I couldn't afford a boat, but I could afford a $50 pair of waders. There you so go. Fly fishing itself for the complete unsnobbish reason of it's a way that I could get on the water that was less expensive. Um, but I was really terrible at trout fishing for a lot of years, <laughs> you know, with a fly. And then, uh, there was this one, uh, outdoor writers conference uh, just before I went trolling on Saginaw Bay with Mike Avery for walleye. And I bought like as a bycatch, you know, targeting walleye, I caught this 28 inch Northern. 
and just holding it in my hands, it just brought back all those memories. And uh, the very next day, um, I went on a bow fishing like field trip, and I'm riding to the 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 spot where we're meeting the, the rest of the fellas with John Cleveland, who's a rep for Daredevil Lures. But he was telling me uh, that he goes up into Canada and he fly fishes for Pike. He's actually a casting instructor that works with like Schultz Outfitters and developing okay. on his own. And for some reason, when you know catching the one trolling the day before, being a struggling, frustrated fly for trout, and then him telling me that you fly, you fly fishes for pike, it just hit me like a ton of bricks, like it's the thing that makes the most sense in the world. And that was about five years ago. I've been obsessed ever since. Um, you know, and so I started gearing up for it, um, go up to my cabin up there and just take the rowboat out and you know, fish the entire time I'm up there. I go up there for three days by myself for the pike opener. Do nothing but just spend the entire time passing out of that rowboat. Um, you know, and then I started tying flies, not to save money, but really, um, so as as I mentioned, so I can make sure that there's no lead in my flies. You know, from from the weighted jigs. Um, you know, with the Klauser dumbbell eyes, I make sure that they're non-toxic. You know, rather than lead eyes. Um, because up there we have loons and eagles and that kind of thing. So if I lose them, I'm not poisoning them. Um, that's part of the motivation for starting. And then that, of course, became one of those obsessive addiction as well. Um, kind of my peace time down. You know, I've got more flies filling up my fly boxes than I can ever hope to use, especially because with fly fishing, we use, um, you know, like metal titanium leaders um, with stay lock snaps. Mm-hmm really lose a lot of flies when you use those snake stay like and so i could i could probably never in like a dozen years fish all the flies i've already tied but i enjoy tying so i just keep tying more you know well how peaceful is that because like i said my dad used to tie him and it's like it, it, tell me if you're the same way or not but he would like get in this zone where like i mean you could be like my sister and i could be like causing a ruckus you know right next to him or in the other room the tv's on or whatever the case there could be a ton of distractions right but he was just like so hyper focused when when he was doing that and i mean tying flies isn't easy you know and he was tying trout flies um so it's you know a fraction of the size of, of some of those pike flies that i've seen you tie but still there's there's so much attention to detail that goes into something like that the harder the bigger ones are harder Oh, I think those trout flies are harder. Oh, yeah, just just the, the size of them. Yeah, you know, um, it's like reading large print versus reading fine print. You know? Yeah. I, my, too clumsy to tie it. I tried to tie a little, like, number 18 and 20 atoms, you know, <laughs> just to get the thing down. And, you know, I, I filled up a couple of little fly boxes with them. And, again, you know, one to my people and they won't so. But, man, I couldn't wait to get back to just tying some, like, big old 4 you know, Bufords or something. (laughs) Well, how difficult is it actually catching pike on fly? Because I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, my experience, you know, fishing for pike is like, kind of like you alluded to daredevils, little Cleos, you know, chuck and duck baby, right? Like let that thing fly, let her sink and then just reel. You'll know when you got one and then, you know, enjoy the fight and then, you know, cast to do it again. But what is it like on a fly? It's exactly the same. 
<laughs> you do exactly the same thing. Um, they just move in the water differently. You've limited your range a little bit more too. Um, you know, so you, you have to be a little bit more deliberate about where you think they might be because, you know, you're even as far as you're going to cast, you're not going to cast the fly, um, you know, nearly as far as you are, you know, like a daredevil. Right. Um, so you've got to be a little bit more deliberate in where you're seeking because uh, you can't, you know, it's not like you're trolling where you can just cover the whole lake. Um, you kind of got to target where you're going to go. You know, a little bit more. You know, if you're drifting and you're going down a river, obviously you can get the bank the whole way down. Um, but so you have to be a little bit more deliberate that, given the the range limitation. Um, the way they hit, it's it seems a little bit different. They they hit a lure, but boy, they hit a fly. A fly moves a little bit more. You know, you think about think about a stick bait or something. You know. Yeah as that erratic action, but the tail of a bucktail is flowing. It's undulating. It's moving left to right. Um, it's jackknifing when you stop it on the pause. And so I think sometimes you get those more violent strikes. Um, it's been a long time since I've done much fly fishing or much fishing for pike, you know, trolling or something like that. But those are more like if you're trolling and you get a pike, it's okay. You see the rod tip go down, what's on the bit. When you're reeling in and stripping in a pike, you got a strip set, no trout setting with those, you know, um, you just feel it. It's like a ton of bricks. It sends shivers up and down your arm, sends adrenaline through your whole body. It's fighting, it's jumping left and right, and you got it on a fly line. Granted, a thick fly line, you know, with titanium leader, but still, it's 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 not like you're just over-muscling it with, with a big bait catcher. Well, yep. yeah, I mean, it, that's one of the things that... I, I like about fly fishing is whether it's for bass, whether it's for pike, whether it's for trout. I mean, now granted, if you're, you know, if you've got a little six inch brookie or something, I'm like, you can just strip that in, right? You can just muscle that. But, you know, if, if you've caught some, some good size browns or if you've been out West and caught some big rainbows or whatever, you know, you've, there's an art to it. You got to finesse that fish. You got to keep that rod tip up. I mean, I, I don't know how many fish I've lost, you know, cause all, oh, you know, you get it on, you, you do everything right and then you get the fish on then you like let that rod tip go and it's like boop gone right like it doesn't even it takes yeah. nothing and it's gone pike don't tend to like run out and run out line like that but they really bulldog you and then they thrash about violently while they're bulldogging you you know so they might they're not going to run outwards but boy they're going to jerk you left right you know and fly out of the water and they're like a ornery bull that you've got on like a lead rope, you know? Yeah. No, but you, you talked about something before there with the, the non lead in, in your flies and everything. Why is, but I mean, you, you touched on it, but I want you to elaborate a little bit more. Why is that such an important thing? I mean, I've, I've been seeing a lot of that, not only, well, more so in the hunting space, but it's obviously certainly prevalent, um, in the fishing world as well. Why is that such an important topic? Uh, well, again, everything goes back to the cottage. <laughs> I love it. Everything comes back to it. Always. Um, it's on a little lake in the Northwoods. And what my family has done from the time I can remember is, uh, while my great-grandpa and you know maybe my great-uncle would take me out fishing, most of the folks there just like to sit by the lake, read a book, and watch the loons. And when I'm there by myself, I'll even sleep on the front porch because it's got windows that open up to the lake leave the blinds open because 
when it's dawn and the mist is rising up and you hear the loon call and that's your wake up call. Um, and then you're out there fishing with them and there's nobody else on the lake. It's just you and a couple of loons that are kind of diving and coming up, diving and coming up. And then there's a, a big white pine on one edge of the lake that has always had bald eagles roosting in it and fishing the lake from it, hunting the lake from it. And that was even when I was a kid in the 80s before they had recovered. That was like, you couldn't see them anyplace else. You would see them up there. I grew up thinking like thinking that the name of white pines was called Eagle Tree. That's just <laughs> what I was with them. And so, you know, I'm up there hunting, um, and whether it's the air and the pigeon, um, eagles eat gut piles, right? Yep. And working for National Wildlife Federation, I became more aware of all the studies that show the mortality of, of eagles from eating, you know, from uh, lead poisoning, uh, usually from eating gut piles, but also from eating fish that that have broken off, you know, lead tackle in them, um, as well as the studies on the mortality of loons due to, to eating both fish that have lead in them, as well as when you lose them, and especially like the drop shot, shot sinkers are about the same size as the pebbles that they use basically to grind up the food in their gullet. Um, and so they, with eagles, they're continuing, to, continually, sorry, increasing in population. So it's not like it's um, putting them on the backward track to extinction, but it is limiting their population growth. And it's having that level of an impact. On loons, it's kind of more localized, but there are places where it's up to like 44% of the mortality of loons is due to that. Not that it's hitting their population like overall, but of the percentage of loons that have pretty high population from lead um, So that's something that I, as an individual hunter angler conservation, can control what I put in the environment. Um, I use copper bullets for hunting. Um, I even buy copper bullets for my my deer camp mates, so so they don't have to worry about it. I'm just you know before season I ask them what they're bringing and they tell me their their caliber what they're bringing. I, I bring them copper bullets like there's no excuse right. They they just got it free for them. Um, but then by tying I make sure that I always do that through tying with tungsten beads. Um, as I mentioned the lead dumbbell eyes even you know as all you're trying to do is like get your fly down to a certain depth if you use weighted fly line which really bring them back you know more level strip back um for instance scientific anglers is one of the first to powder coat tungsten onto their sinking line yeah well they did that for the performance but it also means they're doing that instead of using lead core so again, you're you're substituting toxic lead with a different um, weight that get that serves the same function of basically just getting your flyer your lure down. Um, so I can have the same performance, and then if I lose one, um, if I leave a gut pile, if I lose my fly, if I lose my my split shot, um, I don't have to worry that I unintentionally but prevent preventatively could have um, kill a non-target wildlife that I like to watch. Yeah. No, I mean, I think controlling what you can, what you put out into the wild, I think is first and foremost. And 
I think, you know, it's, and, and we probably talked about this before, but, you know, anyone who's, you know, even sniffed around the word conservation or conservationist, right? Like, I think they, they get this idea that whatever act of, of, con- of conserving that they're doing has to be like this big, grandiose thing, right? Like they see, you know, you know, people online or on TV shows or whatever that are, you know, have, have made a career and made a life, a life's work out of, out of conservation. And, and, you know, it's, it's a great thing, but they, they think they have to do something that could compare to, to what they see. Right. And that's, that's not the case. And I think it's, you see it in kind of a lot of different phases, like, you know, like deer hunting, for example, right? Like you take the person who's just starting off deer hunting or, you know, an average Joe, like you or I, who loves the deer hunt. But I mean, we know the reality is we're probably never going to shoot a Boone and Crockett buck, right. Or even see one. And that's okay. I'm good with that. Right. Like I've, I, I've come tracking in the, uh, one to three bucks per square mile, but yeah. And I've come to terms with that a long time ago. So I'm good with that. But, you know, to the person who hasn't come to that realization, they're seeing the Drury's, you know, whoever it is, um, you know, shooting these, you know, world-class bucks year after year after year. And that's what they think they have to do to be successful deer hunting. And it's not. It absolutely is not. It couldn't be further from the truth. And the same thing kind of goes with conservation. But I always like to tell people, I'm like, conservation, like, it starts with you, right? Like, that's how I sign off every podcast, my other podcast there. And it's... Like every, like you do something small, Drew, I do something small, like maybe someone like maybe your, your cousin or a relative of yours sees the little things that you're doing to do your part. And they go, oh, well, shit, Drew's doing it. doesn't look like it's, it's, it's like an extra chore for him, but he's doing the right thing. Like maybe I should look into doing that too, right? Like he, he brings us, you know, non-lead ammo every year. Like maybe I should start buying that for myself kind of thing. And like that, that groundswell, right? Like that, that ripple effect is you can't quantify it, but man, does it make a difference? Yeah. And you know, you know, I, I work for national wildlife federation, so I have made a career out of it. Um, but I get paid for that. So I don't get to count that as like my heuristic conservation stuff. Right. That's my paycheck. Right. So I still got to do like, stuff that literally anybody can do no matter what job they have right and that's just what you do as an individual in the field with your own hunting and fishing activity. how do you do there's there's a million little choices that we make when we hunt and fish that tend toward conservation or tend away from it right you know look up, up where we're hunting i don't think it's legal and i don't think it's an anti-conservation thing to do it you're not concentrating deer a whole lot because there aren't that many deer there to concentrate. Frankly, um, don't have a conservation problem with that. But if you're doing that where it's illegal, if you're doing that where you are concentrating deer in like a CWD zone, now there's a conservation impact to that. So that's an individual choice that you're making as a hunter, depending on your own circumstance. Um, you know, one of the ones that I do is, you know, like I mentioned, I just use a certain type of ammo. That's really the premium ammo anyways, the, the copper. Um, and I use tungsten to weight my flies, which is really the premium one anyway. So it's a little more expensive, but, you know, I, I look at it this way. You can either buy the expensive ammo and the cheap beer, or you can buy the cheap ammo and the expensive beer. And I'd rather buy the expensive ammo and the cheap beer for, you know, euchre. <laughs> yeah, I, if you- if you're going to drink it fast, who cares, right? Like you're there for quantity, not quality. By the way, and, and just to remind folks, 
we drink the cheap beer after the hunt is over. Of course. <laughs> that goes without saying. Yeah. Of course. Even if you're in the UP, that goes without saying. Yep. <laughs> so do you know, like, I mean, obviously, you know, working for the National Wildlife Federation and, you know, making these choices that you're making with either your fishing tackle or your ammo, how did, you know, where were these studies coming from that really kind of sh- uh, shined a light on the fact that, you know, lead poisoning was having such a an effect on, you know, whether it's, you know, the loons or the, um, or the eagles or, you know, you know anything like that? Well, some of it was coming from the, the condors out west, um, and, and there's a group um, called the Non-Lead Hunting Partnership um, that 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 also advocates for the voluntary individual adoption of non-lead ammo. They've been doing demonstrations, um, different university studies, uh, depending on the species were happening. There's lots of different raptor centers around the country, um, and so you also have, like, uh, there was a a study of new, I think it was New Hampshire or Vermont loons that was documenting some of the, the loon exposure. Um, but you have these raptor centers, uh, you know, really throughout the, the Midwest and the upper, you know, North Woods especially, and they're just documenting the ones that they take in, right? So they, you know, somebody reports to them, we found this eagle that was stumbling around or there's a dead eagle. They'll take them in, try to recover them, and they just keep track of, well, this one was lead poisoning. This one was hit by a truck. This one was that. And a pretty high percentage of them are, are from lead poisoning. Um, you know, so that's part of the studies. And for me, it, it doesn't, it doesn't take a whole lot for me to say, well, that's a quick, easy switch for me to not have that impact on that one particular, uh, species or, or even that one particular, member of that species what i mean by that is when we talk about things like regulating it um you know whether it's putting like the dnr rules or something like that regulation generally comes from population level impact you know where this certain thing is causing a measurable decline in the population of the species with an individual action, you don't have to wait for that. You don't have to wait for like a regulation to come in from above to tell you what to do. And you don't have to wait for it to have a a population level impact to change your own actions. If you see here of a single loon in the area where you fish, a single loon pair that, you know, can be together for 30 years and they died from lead poisoning, you realize that could have been yours. Um, that that individual lead poisoning incident might not cause a population level decline in the loons in your area, but that particular loon pair might be on you. And you wouldn't go out and do that on your own. And I think one of the, the great um, comparisons that I've heard about this, and this comes from uh, Chris Parrish, who's part of that non-lead uh, hunting partnership, is he said, you know, if, as an ethical hunter, if you're out there and you see like a deer, and you go to take the shot at that deer, and it's a target deer, but you double check to make sure there's not another deer standing behind it. If you were to shoot through that first deer, and it goes through and it mortally wounds that second deer behind it, that's not going to cause a population level impact in the deer herd. However, you have now killed a non-target animal 
that you did not intend to kill because you didn't do the things that are taught in hunter safety 101, right? Right. When you think about an eagle that eats the gut pile of that deer that you shot with no other deer shot standing beneath it, um, if you use lead and that lead poisons that bald eagle that eats the gut pile, you've kind of done the same thing. It's not behind it in space, but it is behind it in time. And you've killed a non-target wildlife animal that you did not intend to. And that's just not what an ethical hunter does. Uh, if you're an ethical hunter, you you make sure your shot is clear. You make sure there's nothing behind it. Um, and when you're talking about things like non-lead, you're just taking that individual voluntary action to make sure that there's no wildlife that's going to get killed that's behind it in time. Uh, and if you apply the same thing to, you know, losing your lead uh, sinkers uh, to loons, then you're really just applying the same thing as an ethical aim. Uh, you know, there's lots of things that happen that we don't intend to out in the field. Um, there's things that we don't have control over. Um, there's things that happen. Be All right. So you mentioned something um, about like regulation and for a lot of hunters or anglers, you know, nothing is regulations aren't likely to come down unless there's like this drastic decline in population or the herd or whatever it is. And, you know, the, the likelihood of lead poisoning becoming something that causes drastic declines in, in, in a lot of things is, is probably unlikely, at least in our lifetime. Right. But it's, it's having that wherewithal that to to make those decisions like you said and the comparison that you made i think is a good one right it's 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 what happens in the time after the target animal is is dead or is you know is you know the fish is gutted whatever whatever the case is right how is it that we can as as hunters as anglers as conservationists how is it that you know we can help make sure that that things like that don't become an issue aside from just doing things on our own. Yeah. So one thing where that goes to as well is, is you're also looking at what is the impression of hunting and fishing amongst the general public. Right. Doesn't hunt and fish. If they know that we could be individually doing something that prevents individual wildlife loss, that's unintentional. And we're not, that doesn't look good on us. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good look for the community. Um, but beyond that, um, there can be legislation without regulation. And a lot of our best legislation for wildlife conservation has been like that. Think about the Pittman Robertson Act. The Pittman Robertson Act did not say you can do this or can't do that. What the Pittman-Robertson Act did is say, here's resources for wildlife professionals to recover wildlife that are in peril. We actually have that opportunity right now with a bill that has passed the House, that is being considered by, by the Senate, um, that is supported by a bipartisan group of legislators and pushed by every hunting, conservation, and environmental group in the country, and that's the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. That does the same thing. The Amer Recovering America's Wildlife Act doesn't say you can't do this or can't do that. 
what it does is provide the resources to recover wildlife that are not yet endangered, as we were talking about. It's, it's to make sure they don't get to that stage. And so when we talk about species, as I was mentioning, like bald eagles, they're off the endangered list. They're, they're doing better. Um, common loons are not endangered. They're struggling in places. Neither one of those are going on the endangered species list right now. But neither one of those are, are doing so well that they're not at risk for sliding back off if a couple things go wrong. And so what the Recovering America's Wildlife Act does is it draws upon each state's um, species of greatest conservation need list. And that's what these species are on. They're saying these are the, the wildlife species that need a little more help. They're not endangered yet, but boy, if a few things go wrong, they could be at risk of that. And it pumps the conservation funding needed to recover those species um, before they get to that, that level. And the way we describe this is like, you know, I mentioned the kind of the, 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 the comparison with, you know, the eagle and the deer standing behind the comparison right. is regularly, regularly scheduled medical checkups versus the emergency room. So what we're going to do, what we're trying to do with the Recovering America's Wildlife Act is for species like common loons, um, like Blanding's turtles, like, you know, lake sturgeon and that kind of thing. Before they get to the level that they are endangered, we're going to give the, the state wildlife agencies the resources they need to recover them so that they don't get to that emergency room measure. Because what happens if they did slide into that Endangered Species Act territory? You wouldn't be able to fish, for instance. Uh, you wouldn't be able to do the the, the, the chivalry, the Black Lake uh, sturgeon season, you know, um, if they were endangered. You would have to go to all non-lead and maybe not be able to fish certain lakes if common loons ever became endangered. Because those would be things that would threaten their recovery. So let's not get to the point where that's a thing. Let's provide wildlife agencies the resources they need to make sure they never get to that level. And that's the big legislation that that's going through. Um, it's it's we're getting to the end of the legislative term. It's gotten as far as it ever has this legislative term. And this is kind of our shot to get this done. Um, so aside from taking those individual actions that help make sure that those species never get to that point. You can also call your, your legislator and say, hey, this term before the new year's out has to recover America's wildlife act. Yeah. And what I think I love most about a bill like this is that for once it feels like, you know, us, and I'm, I'm using the term us very broadly here, as conservationists are being proactive instead of reactive, right? Because I've had... Numerous conversations with, you know, people like Jared Frazier, who is, you know, very in the know. You and I both know Jared well. And, you know, that's kind of like one of the goals of just conservation is, right, is get to a point where you can be proactive instead of reactive. Because think about all the, the different bills or things that are proposed that, you know, there's all of a sudden there's a, an urgent call to arms, right? Like we've got to stop this. We've got to shut this, this bill down, whether it's selling off of, of you know, big swaths of, of public land out west 
or you know trying to repeal the aforementioned Pittman Robertson Act like I mean things like this I mean to to be ahead of those and for those things to not even come up is is really the the end goal and that's a nice thing about conservation right like it's the ultimate long game and I've I've said that before but like we're doing things now that like your son my son will have will be able to reap the benefits of and hopefully you know, if, if they enjoy the outdoors as much as we do and conservation, that they'll take a step back and be like, well, maybe we should do something for our kids one day, right? Because this foundation, this path has been laid and it's, you know, it's up to us to, to lead by example for, for our kids, for the next generation. Absolutely. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, it just, it just gave me the thought, like, this coming summer, I'm going to take my boy up to our cottage for the first time what forget about what kind of angler or conservationist would I be? What kind of dad would I be if when he's my age, he doesn't see loons on that lake and have that same experience I did because I got cheap and used lead sinkers. Yeah. Right. Not that it's that drastic, but like what if the accumulation of lead in that lake from all the different people that did it finally reached that tipping point where it killed off the the loons that like to come to that lake. And then when my son's my age, he couldn't watch them. Yeah, he's just sitting on the porch. Knowingly. Like, I'll give a pass to anybody that doesn't know about it, right? You're out there, you got, you know, your lead sinkers in, in in your tackle box. You've used them forever. You didn't even know this was an issue. Yeah, this isn't on you. It's just not. Um, once you know about it, though. Now you're making that decision doing that action with the knowledge that you may be causing that harm. Um, and so if you've listened to this podcast and you didn't know about it before, what? Well, now you know about it. Now, now you're, <laughs> you just heard me this whole spiel. You're, you are now on the hook because now you know about it. <laughs> on the hook. Another pun, another dad joke. We're full of them tonight. <laughs> yeah and for those listening yeah you can't rewind it stick your fingers in your ears and say blah 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 blah. i didn't hear anything that drew just said because it's i mean what is the investment right for for non-lead sinkers give me tell me what the, you know a pack of of non-lead sinkers five bucks six bucks i've got my 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 tungsten beads i don't know it was a couple bucks yeah I mean, I did at the cottage because I have a bunch of like little like um, like my third cousins and like their kids come up and there's like a tackle box there that they all just kind of share. Um, so I bought a bunch of Orvis non-toxic split shot. And I took out the lead sinkers from that and I put them in there. So they're using non-lead. They don't even know it. But that's good. That's good. I mean, because, uh, you know, conservation starts with you, Drew. You're living it. I love it. All right, closing thoughts here before I let you get out of here and tie some more flies. Yeah, you know, I think you nailed it. When when you say conservation starts with you, there's just a million little things that we can do. There's We've only scratched the surface of like literally what, two things that you can do. Um, it's picking up plastic when you're on the river, right? You see somebody else's bobber hanging in the tree, pick it up, get rid of it. Scientific Anglers has this little leave it better bag. It's a little mesh bag that can clip to your pack or your canoe or your boat. 
Just get one of those, put it in there. Every time you see some fishing line or whatever, don't go past it. Pick it up, put it away. That ends up getting into the lakes. I've been researching like how that impacts up the food chain to things like Northern Pike. Um, you know, simple things. Things like washing your waders. Things like not transferring bait from, you know, one watershed to another. Um, they're simple things. They're hard to remember sometimes. But the more that you can be conscious of those things, they're just simple practices you can work into your ritual for when you go afield and when you go on the water. Um, the people who you teach how to hunt, how to fish, once you've made that part of your practice, that'll be part of what you teach those folks whether you know it or not. Um, and that's how we spread these practices that, that take care of the wildlife, not just the ones that we hunt and fish, but the ones that everybody likes to enjoy and watch so we're not having a negative impact on it. And so when we pass down these passions of hunting and fishing and basketball, by the way, and football and all these things, baseball, all the good stuff, we're passing them down in a sustainable way so that they don't die out in a couple generations. And that's our legacy as hunters, anglers, conservationists. Yeah, football. You pass down eight man because now you can sustain it for multiple years, right? There you uh, go. But as but as as mothers and fathers and grandmas and grandpas too, because that's what was passed down to us. Um, whether it was through, you know, a shotgun or a cottage or you know, an old black and white picture that just inspired you. Um, so when we pass that down, let's make sure we're leaving our descendants a legacy that our ancestors left us. Very well put. Drew Youngdike, thank you again, man. It's always good to catch up. Best of luck uh, the rest of the way here. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy holidays. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon, man. Thanks, Marcus. All right. Take care. All right. Well, thank you again to Drew for spending some time with me to uh, talk deer camp and, and non-leaded tackle and ammo and, and pike fishing and all that good stuff. Um, <clears throat> hope everyone out there had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, you're getting back into the swing of things here on Monday and um, gearing up for the rest of the holiday season. So until next week, stay wild, Michigan.